This is Michael, you're listening to Models of Masters, and I'm so grateful you're here. I'm breaking down personal stories, learned wisdom, and pieces of insight I hope can help you along your journey. Head over to my website, michaelbecker.org, for much more. And with that, let's get right into the show. Welcome back to another episode, guys. My guest today operates at the intersection of neuroscience, behavioral science, technology, and team leadership. He's held executive roles at companies like Kodak and HP, and now runs his own consultancy where he uses proprietary neuroscience-based software to measure how leader behavior impacts team performance. He's also a four-time startup founder and CEO, and today he consults CEOs and leaders on maximizing their efficiency, eliminating toxicity in the workforce, and creating a more trusting workforce and team that uh, ripples throughout the enterprise. He's the author of two books, The One Habit and Team Relationship Management. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Jeb Hurley. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much hey, for sitting down. My pleasure. My pleasure. So there's so much to dive into, you know, on all of these topics. We're, we're immersed right now in what feels like a revolution in terms of culture and work. Um, and I want to dig into all of that. But where I'd love to start is is really just on what's brought you to where you are now and specifically, you know, the things that you learned throughout your career um, with the companies you've, you've been at, Kodak, HP, and others that helped you identify the need in the market. And then not just that behavioral science could be something helpful for teams, but could potentially be the antidote to inspiring better leaders yeah. in companies. Cool. Yeah, great question. And yeah, it's something I, I can geek out like all day on this this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, uh, the Genesis story, yeah, talking about me is probably not my favorite topic, so we can, uh, we can get through this one quick. Um, but it is interesting how our uh, our early experiences, you know, particularly our life's journey, you know, you know, as children and and uh, you know, as we come into adulthood, but then as we begin our careers, yeah. you know, I found that I was really sensitive to um, kind of bad managers, you know, mm-hmm. toxicity in environments, and it, I mean, in a in a way that you know, I found that it, it had a pretty profound effect on sort of my oh, yeah. view of of what it meant to be part of an organization right. and so, and that happened sort of early in my career and then I had the good fortune of being part of some great teams and some great organizations and so you get this kind of contrast that um was the sort of the primordial soup out of which you know this uh, an intense for me intense curiosity yeah about the why of that yeah and as I, I had the good fortune um during my early career to have been sponsored in by organizations like like digital equipment and kodak um they did some pretty uh awesome leadership development programs yeah the center for creative leadership at harvard business school later on at the, the aspen institute their leadership at the peak and two things struck me with that one you know if you have an organization that's willing to invest in you as a young executive mm-hmm. it makes a difference but yet I still couldn't answer the question for others, sort of, you know, why one organization, why one team, you know, why one division was so effective and the others weren't. Right. Because it, it was very much a, a personal journey as mm. opposed to a collective. Mm. And that's what triggered my interest in that um, ultimately led to my kind of doing the deep dive, earning a doctorate in, uh, in organizational leadership with a focus in the behavioral science and, and, yeah. um, and, and team dynamics. Yes. Was trying to get a sense of the broader patterns because mm-hmm. sort of you know, the reality is if, even if you've had a you know half a dozen or more roles you're st- you still don't have statistical 
validity. You have a point of view that's come from your experiences, but you don't have the benefit of that broader, deeper look. Yes. And so that became my uh, kind of my why was to you know to, to answer to be able to answer for others that yeah. question to, to stay relevant. Yep. Um, you know, as as I moved through a career that has had both, as you mentioned, large large corporate experiences at the yeah. kind of corporate VP general manager level, as well as multiple CEO experiences mm-hmm. in early stage and growth stage companies. And um, my goal became, you know, my mission for, you know, for myself became one of uh, gathering insights that I could then take to others and make yes. a difference in, in their lives and the lives of the people that were part of their organization. Bridging, bridging the gap, so to speak, exactly. between what people don't know, but need to know about what drives behavior, and then existing dynamics that perhaps have been in place far too long in yeah, a lot of Yeah, companies. exactly. And, and as, you, as you said at the outset, you know, in a world that is going through you know, really dramatic um, and rapid change, yeah. and you know, the, the workplace of you know, uh, our parents and, and their parents, it's not the world that we're operating mm-hmm. in today. In fact, you know, most managers, if they're over 30, 35 years old, grew up in an environment where today's world is pretty foreign. Yes. Both, you know, driven by sort of multiple factors, changes in the way organizations are designed, changes mm-hmm. in the, the population of those organizations, mm-hmm. particularly sort of the millennial Gen Z, or, you know, taking now a, a much bigger part in the, um, the decision-making and the operations of organizations. Yes. And, you know, the political climate, I mean, sort of all of these dimensions yeah. Yeah. Um, intersecting at once creates real challenges for today's yes. aspiring managers and leaders. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I can relate. I mean, and to so much of your journey as well, you know, I, I share a lot of those, a lot of parallels. Um, I'm still in the first, you know, third of my career. I just turned 31. So, um, you know, really, really still in a spot of figuring out not just what I want, but how to adapt and adjust to an obviously different environment from where I began eight years ago. And, you know, I've been with really large companies with multi multinational, you know, well-funded, you know, established SaaS companies to startups that were local. And we were just trying to be scrappy and figure out what worked. Um, And the, the leadership style, you know, is to be expected very different between both of those dynamics. And then you have everything in between, but something that struck me about what you were talking about, I think a metaphor that, feels that feels interesting for me to look at companies is that of an ocean and then it's like you have smaller ponds of teams within the organization and if there's no if there's no tributaries between those different ponds then they're really just almost like separate they're they're siloed within the the company and so i'm curious what 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 some examples may be where you've you've seen that disconnect within companies and then how especially in this remote culture like what steps can teams and companies take to make sure that that cohesion doesn't get lost yeah good, good question and, and and observation i think that um you know if you if you go back if you go back in time mm-hmm. and the, you know, one of the products of the Industrial Revolution yeah. was the form of the corporation yep. uh, that was incredibly effective yeah. at kind of building things in mass production and getting them out the door. Yeah. And the very nature of those organizations were hierarchical, right? You had, you had a hierarchy that was driven by more of kind of command and control. And there were lots of guardrails, 
And that produced silos, mm. uh, which is why, you know, sort of most large legacy organizations have a, have a more, you know, sort of hierarchical siloed structure. Yes. And they depended on um, a lot of processes being put in place for communications, for managing decisions up and down. And in a relatively slow moving world where you could, you know, your strategic plans were a five year or 10 year exercise, it worked. And, you know, it, it was really, you know, as we came into particularly the, you know, the latter part of the 20th century into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the pace of technological change in particular began to take hold, right? You, yeah. know, you, could, you could trace it back to the Internet and then sort of these trends around process reengineering and re-looking at sort of the structure and design of corporations. All of a sudden, you know, in the removal of middle management, which mm-hmm. was kind of the glue in a lot of these big companies that, yeah. that held that together. Yeah. And the shift more of a more team-based organization suddenly removed the guardrails. Yes. And this is and one of the dimensions of that that people don't realize or think about is that the need in the traditional corporate structure, the need for trust was actually relatively low. Yeah. Because you had all of these checks and balances mm. at every level. And yes. it's not that things didn't go wrong and, and go sideways. So, you know, of course they did. People are people. But there was a lot of in the structure, in the hot in the silos, a, a lot of um, sort of risk reduction that happened. <laughs> when you move to something that is flatter, more team-based, uh, more independent, mm-hmm. then the the Trust becomes something that is far more important. Yeah, as as just a, not not just a core value in an organization, but but you know as a set of you know as a behavior that has to permeate it. Otherwise, without all of those traditional guardrails, it kind of goes off. It, it's easy, and it's, yeah. tons of examples of that. Yeah, in you know companies that grew fast, like in, in Uber, and and um, you know and other organizations that moved, you know, that shifted their model. Mm-hmm. And suddenly found themselves sideways when it came to the uh, behaviors and the values and the norms of that organization, and yeah. you know, moving down into things which were, if not illegal, certainly somewhat you know unethical. Sure. Uh, whether it was you know, you know, sexual harassment or racism or you know, just um, any of those toxic behaviors yeah. uh, become easier to form, to ferment inside of organization in today's today's organizations that yeah. are flatter, more fluid, more agile. True. Um, so you know the and you asked about so so how so how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that if you look at the organizations that have handled that the very, very best, um, where you know, teams are exceptionally good at maintaining um, their the level of trust and its psychological safety, its people's comfort, you know, being able to be themselves, bring their whole selves to the team and the yeah. organization, yes. right, at a group level as opposed yes. to just an individual level. Um, they all share a common denominator mm. around a the, the type of culture they build in yes. organizations. Yes. Uh, and the, the big the big challenge and the big unknown for you know for so many organizations, so many leaders, is the how of that. Right. So you know, Which, it, the, the answer is simple. You know, you, you build it. You build a great culture um, around trust, yes. around performance, psychological safety, and relationships. Yes. Yes. And you break down. You rapidly will remove silo-like behavior. You engender sort of collaboration, mm-hmm. camaraderie, innovation, and camaraderie yeah. in ways that you know teams and, and the organization they're part of will excel. 
but it's, it's a lot easier said than done. I think that these concepts of camaraderie and community within organizations and the importance of feeling comfortable and having emotional intelligence from a top-down you know, perspective within organizations, it's not new, but it's relatively new in terms of how people look at the importance of you know, injecting a, le- a certain level of comfort and trust um, in especially modern remote cultures and tech companies. I don't think people like JP Morgan or Henry Ford were very worried about the how, how you know, pleased and happy and emotionally safe that their employees felt, right? Their, their main goal was to put processes in place that um, could optimize productivity and therefore revenue for the company. But we don't live in that world anymore. Um, talk about the just the added layers of complexity complexity that have come along with you know the way that things have evolved today yeah no you're absolutely right michael the um, and the interesting thing is i mean there was you know starting in the the middle of a you know after world war ii the middle of the 20th century and it accelerated this you know and into the positive psychology and, and sort of really understanding that you know in, that people and employees who had their their basic needs met tended to be better employees. They right. So there, there sort of was that realization, but again, it was happening initially within these more siloed hierarchical organizations. Mm-hmm. And again, if, if trust isn't something that a manager or a leader needs to, you know, they're not worrying about it, at least in a really conscious way. They, they'll do other things, you know, employee, you know, support programs, employee assistance programs. A lot of good things happen through that. I mean, you know, and I was fortunate to be part of organizations, you know, large organizations that they put a lot of that, those kinds of uh, supportive programs in place. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, you know, what that doesn't take care of is when you move to a different organizational design, that team of teams that things get built out. Um, you know, one of the biggest ahas in my work and research was that you know, the complexity that's introduced by that um, is very much a function of, you know, you have more human behaviors coming to the fore. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, if you're in a role inside of a silo that's pretty plug compatible with most other roles and, you know, no matter sort of what you're told, you know, all the way up to the CEO mm-hmm. that, you know, that's, you know, if it's not working out, you leave, they, you know, they ask you to leave, they put somebody else in. Yeah. As you move into the, into sort of the silo organizations, individual behaviors become much more um, amplified mm-hmm. and, and more, even more uh, so is team behavior. Mm-hmm. And my aha was that ultimately culture, you know, it's not something that somebody pronounces. Cult- organizational culture, it's not something, something you manage. Right. You know, it, it's, it's really team behavior that's happening at scale, like an invisible hand. Uh, or you can, you know, for Star Wars fans, they can think of it as kind of like the force. Yeah. Where it's this force that, that is influencing people's behavior. It's influencing how they live, the values and, and the norms that is part of their team and other teams in the organization. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about that is that once you recognize that you know, culture is team and especially executive team behavior scaled, yeah. then you can begin to reduce things down into the human dynamics that are shared by everybody. Mm. And that turns out to be the key. Okay. That that so much of what gets focused on inside of, you know, whether you know you're 
leadership, you know, leadership development and training is number one, the individual versus the team. Mm -hmm. And then when it's the team, even if it is the team, it's not really focusing on the behavioral dynamics that are driving um, the culture of that team. And to really get at that, you got to dig a little deeper. Yeah. And that's sort of where, you know, my interest in my work, as you described at the beginning around starting with, you know, what are those core drivers that make us human? That that get on display when we become part of a group, you know, that's, yes. that is intended to become a team to yes. work together to accomplish something, and it's that that sort of basic neurobiology that then intersects with, you know, the you know our personalities and who we've become that intersects mm-hmm. with this other, the, all these other humans mm. that becomes the really interesting place to influence um, yes. as a leader uh, in an organization because when you get that right, you, you've, you've decoded. Um, culture. Definitely. Yeah. And and you're not managing it. You're not controlling it. You decoded, decoded it, it so that like you that. can influence it I in like that ways word. that you know, attract talent. Yes. People who and keep want it. to be there and keep it. That's exactly right. Well, and one thing that's been on my mind a lot lately is, and I want to get your thoughts on this too, um, things that, that inspire and that trigger employees to actually want to engage and remain and be creative and add value and, you know, actually move the needle, uh, as opposed to being disengaged and, you know, nonchalant or lackadaisical in their approach. And I think that's also been an interesting moving target with, you know, the remote world that we've moved into. Maybe this is a separate question, but I'm going to forget it if I don't say it because it's very fascinating to me as a millennial. And so I'm going to say a blanket statement here. That's probably not true for everybody, but in general, I think that the way that millennials tend to want to work and the way that we tend to be incentivized is different from my, the way that my parents' generation or the baby boomers grew up. And I think there, there is an unspoken divide there as more, you know, 20 and 30 year old, as, as that cohort starts to come in to positions of, you know, more authority and leadership in companies, the things that we care about, they're very different from past generations, flexibility, I mean, salary is important, but maybe not as important as cohesiveness of the team and freedom to work when, where, and how we want. Like, how is that? How do you even go about bridging that gap? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great um, observation that has yeah. some real truth in it. Yeah. But, but let me kind of reframe it a little Please. bit. Because, and, and I'm going to reframe it from, uh, sort of from a First, not a generational perspective, but from a from a cultural perspective in, yeah. in the um, in the national culture sense. Yeah. One of one of my big learnings in working, uh, uh, part of what I did when I was at HP is I had the uh, the privilege of working with some really talented country leaders and teams across Asia. Okay. You can't get any more different than how a, a leader in India is approaching his or her team and, and sort of building a high-performance, high-trust team versus Japan, versus Vietnam, versus mm. Australia. Mm. And so it was an interesting challenge because, you know, as, you know, as this you know, sort of Western, you know, American, you know, it would have been incredibly, you know, um, you know both naive and, and as well as um, just... You know, hubris to think that I was going to go in and, and tell someone like that or help someone like that be yeah. a better manager in that country. Yeah. But what I realized is that what I could do is if I found what sat beneath culture, 
that was common to everybody mm. as a human being. Right. If you can get that right, right, then you can adjust it for national culture. You can also adjust it for generational cultures. So you're absolutely right about the, you know, from a Gen Z, from a millennial, yeah. you know, through baby boomers. But the difference is, it's not like, you know, Gen Z, you know, although, you know, every generation, so, you know, you know it's so, you know, the parents, you know, complain about the kids and they're this, you know, I mean, every, right, it's been forever. Yeah. But in reality, of course, as humans, um, you know, from a, um, you know, from a neuropsychological level, you know, it's not like we've evolved very much in the last few millennia or, or more. So fundamentally, we all have the same needs and drives as human beings because this is wired into our brains. Okay. They manifest differently yeah. because if you grew up in the post-World War II baby boom generation, mm-hmm. your socialization as an employee as a person, was heavily influenced by the events that shaped the world at that time. Very much so. And so, you know, I, you know, for, you know our, our parents, grand, you know, it was, or, you know, if you go back like grandparent generation, right? They, they dealt with the depression. Yeah. Much as millennials, you guys dealt with the, the 2008 financial yes. crisis. All of that stuff influences the way we think about, you know, job security and pay and all of those things. Yeah. What it doesn't change is those fundamental needs around having a set of aligning the core, the values that you hold close as a, as a person yeah. with the values of a team and a different organization. Okay. What that doesn't change is that you want to find purpose and meaning in your work and develop the, the skills to be able to do that and have yeah. the freedom. Right. Everybody, everybody has that same core set of psychological needs when it comes to work. Hmm. Everybody wants to find meaning and purpose in what they do. Build the skills to realize that purpose and be given the freedom to go after it. Yeah. So whether whether I'm whether I'm managing a team of Gen Zs, baby boomers, millennials, or all three, yeah. if my conversation with you as as a manager, as a leader, is about helping you find that purpose in your role, mm. building the skills and giving you the freedom, doesn't matter. Yeah. So that turns out to be the key. And this is where behavioral science and, and the neuroscience that supports it becomes so powerful. Because what I'm doing is I'm tapping into part of the, the it's actually your, your limbic system mm. and related processes where you know, when we have that conversation, you walk away literally with the, you know, with a, a, a triggered a, a dopamine release. Yes. You feel good. You go home, you know, high at night, talk to, you know, your significant other spouse and say, wow, you know, I had a great conversation with my boss today. And, you know, we talked about sort of how I can continue to build in my role and supporting me to get to do that. Yes. And man, he lets, you know, as I get this stuff, he just lets me run with it. Um, mm-hmm. So everybody needs that. Right. Right. So that turns out to be this really cool, sits below age divisions, cultural divisions, Got that it. when leaders get that, when they grasp how to understand the understanding and how to influence, yeah. that's how you build yes. 
high trust, high performance cultures mm -hmm. by influencing the, the you know, and meeting the core needs of everybody on your team or anybody yeah. in the organization. And I want to ask you about the, the architecture of habit formation as well and specific tactics that either individuals or managers and team leaders can use to catalyze and trigger the desires and the feel-good chemicals that you were just alluding to. And it's different for everybody. Um, the things that would incentivize me to feel like I wanted to work harder and or not harder but more productive or to have an impact may be very different from somebody else I like to see the impact of my work for example on other people either internally but especially externally I like to have that validation to know that what I'm doing is making a difference in the world and when I see the effect of that it gets me excited it, it arouses me to want to produce more and do better um, Take that where you want. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why it's so powerful when, you know, and again, you know, kind of going back to this refrain, yeah. you know, culture is team behavior at scale, right? Because it's the team level, the team construct that is, is having the biggest impact on individuals and the organization, you know, and the culture of the organization because that's a, you know, that's a, say, a six-person unit. I as you know, as a team member of that, you know, and particularly, you know, in a, if I if I strive to be a serv, you know, kind of a servant leader, someone whose my job is to help my you be successful. Mm. That's why I exist in this role. Love that concept. Then by helping you find that purpose, yeah, yours versus your colleague here, your colleague here. You guys are all different, but in the context of what it is we're looking to accomplish as a team, yeah, then I have taken that first step. In creating, you know, a, a a cultural environment where people will really thrive. Yes. Now, to get to your question, we as humans, we are incredibly good at screwing that up. You know, it's just that you know the very nature of human nature is we, you know, because right, we're talking about relationships, mm -hmm. and we're really pretty good at messing up relationships. But but what is the if you boil that down into its essence? And this becomes kind of the third big piece. It boils down to a very simple dynamic that is also happens to be also the kind of the core of, of what is trust, which is simply you know, trust in its simplest definition is that is we trust when we have a positive expectation that we can be vulnerable with another person and that our experience will be positive in that encounter. Mm. That That's simple. So every relationship we have is built around this notion that we have an expectation. Yeah. Parents, yeah. siblings, girlfriends, we're, yes. we have an expectation. Our bosses, you know, it works. Our bosses, our colleagues, and other people on other teams. The experience those people deliver is what's going to determine, the size of the gap is going to determine the level of toxicity, mm. that, you know, depending on the why, but also the direction of that relationship. Right. If, we're, if we have a high expectation of someone and they consistently disappoint, what happens? How, how do you feel about it? Your expectations plummet. And then what happens sense. to that? What happens to your expectation of that relationship? Yeah, nothing. You give up. Yeah, right? Nothing. So nothing there. you know, it, 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 there's nothing there. That's exactly right. So the key then is being able to, it's, it's sort of developing, you know, it, it's part of emotional intelligence, part of sort of EQ, but developing sure. this radar like sense of, where are the gaps on my team between what people are expecting of me, the right, manager, right. of each other as, as teammates, and perhaps on you know other teams they depend on? Yeah. And it then becomes my ability, and it's so simple, if I get good at closing those gaps, 
changing people's behavior mm -hmm. to close those gaps, then I have created this virtuous habit cycle. It's, mm -hmm. it's why it, my, the, my first book was called The One Habit. Yeah. And it, it came out of this, you know, and it came out of some, I had done a lot of, I had the good fortune and privilege of working with an Israeli Air Force squadron during my research and studying a number of SEAL teams. And one night at dinner with the, with the, with the fighter pilots, um, when we were talking, we were talking sort of generally about um, their, you know, how they go operational, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and they, that captain, he, he, was, he was pretty funny. He said, "Look, we got, we probably have the biggest egos in Israel." Serious, <laughs> he said. I mean, because they're the one percent of the one percent. To be, they're probably some of the best, if not the best, fighter pilots in the world. Yeah, and you know, they know, right? He said, "But there's, when we go into the operations room. There's not an ego allowed in that room." Right. And he said, "If there's a gap." between what we expected each other on this team, if anybody said, we will not fly with someone if we don't have that gap closed. Mm. He said, because, mm. you know, you know, we're at, you know, we're at, you know, one and a half, two times, you know, mock speeds and, you know, flying wing to wing. And sometimes the communications is it's looking and, and literally it's cockpit to cockpit. Yeah. You can't trust that. Yeah. Absolutely, because there's no gap between what you expect of your colleague and the experience they're about to deliver as you know as you as you go into a into a into an operation. Somebody doesn't come home. Mm. So super high stakes right. to close the gaps. But it was that aha because we can all do that. Yeah. We yeah. can all get good at seeing if there, you know, is there a gap between what's what you expect of me as your manager? Why is that gap there? Mm -hmm. And then if I work to close it, that's the one habit. Because what I've done is I have triggered some of the most powerful, I've done two things. I've triggered some of the most powerful brain chemistry around building trust in our relationship yeah. and safety on that team. Yeah. And I've also diminished the likelihood of triggering the, the much more dangerous neurochemicals that, that are that a company in trust is lost because mm. when we when we diminish mm. trust, if we destroy trust, you know, people don't forget. You know, people really don't forget that. Yes. You, know, you can build trust and people like it. Yeah. You destroy trust and people hate you. I, I wanted to ask you about that point. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. Um, so many people talk about or regurgitate information that they've heard about the value and the importance of of positivity uh, in the workplace, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about the compounding negative impact of toxicity in the workplace. Um, and I know I know you felt it uh, at times in your career. I know I've certainly felt it in my career as well. And I think from my perspective, a lot of the toxicity that tends to evolve in the, in the workplace, especially, and then mutate unto itself, right, which really just makes things all that much more worse. Um, but I think it start. I, I do think it starts with ego and just a level of, of selfishness um, with wanting to propel one's own agenda or career, perhaps at the expense of a team or others, or even the organization. I think at a base level, you know, to some degree, we're, we're all self-serving, especially from a career perspective. That's what we're looking to do. Um, so number one, like how do you put the needs of the group or the company above yourself? Number two, is that a realistic goal or expectation to have? And then how do you reduce toxicity from mutating within a group or team. Mm, yeah, which is, which is really um, can be one of the most challenging aspects of uh, group dynamics, right? When yeah. It's because it's like cancer and it's metastasizing. Exactly. Body. exactly. But I think that, yeah, so kind of to uh, break that apart a little bit. So there's no, 
you know, you have the you have multiple things going on. You have the behaviors which will you know, trigger distrust, you know, or the, or the destruction of, of trust. And, you know, and they, they, you know, they range from, you know, malignant narcissism and, you know, and pathologies where, you know, I mean, people really, they're just there for themselves. I mean, yeah. you describe them um, accurately. It's important to understand that what's happening when that happens is, you know, people go through, you're, you're triggering a very different, you're tr- triggering a much older part of the brain. Um, and systems that trigger some very strong emotions, the, as well as stress chemicals. We, I mean, this is what you literally feel it um, yeah. when that goes right. You really do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, literally, it can make people mentally and physically ill. And you know, and it's why we then, you know, we, we try. You go through a lot of rationalizing and shielding, or whatever, to try and protect ourselves in, in toxic situations. Yeah. The the defense against that. I mean, it all starts with building, you know, you know, if it's young companies and even companies as they grow, you know, it, and this is why I focus on executive teams and CEO, because they are modeling the behaviors that are going to then influence the culture for the rest of the organization. Sure. If you put the bar extremely high, like the Israeli fighter pilots do, like the Navy SEALs do, like, you know, really good hospital OR teams, and you can go, you know, you can find it everywhere. Yeah. What they all share is they've set the bar very high around the the values that the individual brings to the team and the, the behaviors they live in supporting those values. Okay. And they set the and, and with a very low tolerance for any deviation away from those core values mm-hmm. and the behaviors associated with them. Mm-hmm. Because they know that at the end of the day, that is what's going to determine how everyone else experiences. Right. Uh, you know the their work at that or on that team or in that organization. So the, the key by far is you know, that's where you start. Hmm. Fixing it um, is goes back to actually what I was just describing is that when, when I'm when I'm asked to come into an organization to do some detoxing work. Um, yeah, it's a pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's like being a neurosurgeon, right? I mean, the first thing you do is diagnose, you know, where are the sources, you know, where's the cancer, you know, and it's almost always behavioral. Isolate that. And then one of two things, you know, either you're going to remove it uh, or you're going to treat it. And the treatment is, it's this sort of consistently closing the experience expectation gap against a set of values and norms that reflect the culture you want to build. So if I want a high trust, high performance culture, you know, that, that, you know, people are energized by, you know, and it, it doesn't mean everybody's like always just like nice to each other. You know, it's not about that because learning how to, how to create constructive conflict is crucial to innovation. Mm. That ability to, you and I can, you know, go at it and mm-hmm. argue, but we're doing it. It's not personal. We're right. doing it to arrive at a better decision. Right, right, right. So building, you know, all those are values that, you know, different organizations have different yeah. sets of, different teams will have different sets of cultures and values yeah the key is though to detoxifying when you're going to detoxify you know you diagnose you isolate you treat or you do surgery that's really kind of it and and or it kills it, it kills yeah. and it kills teams it kills organizations mm-hmm. you know that's you know kind of the one of the you know top causes of organizational and team death is toxic, toxic culture and that's where you start to you see the, yeah i'm sorry no, I was just—I was going to say that I think that's where you start to see, you know, more turnover. 
higher turnover rates by the by the years. The company looks nothing like it did one year prior, and it may spread, you know, among everybody or even worse to, to customers and clients. Yeah. And it could be the, the downfall of a it can. I, I will tell you, and what's even worse, and, and because there's a lot more of it, is that organizations they just get mired in mediocrity. You know, it's not so bad that they die. Yeah. It's just, it's why, you know, in most industry sectors, you know, it's a bell curve, a bell curve distribution. You have some really yeah. bad performers and they're they're on their deathbed. They're yeah. the walking dead. Yeah. You have these top performers in the industry, in, in, in any given industry sector, and they, they just are knocking it out of the park. And then you have kind of everybody in the middle who's trying to figure it out. <laughs> and they're just average, you know, and they may have some stars here, but at the end of the day, yeah. And sometimes, you know, they're kind of like the, uh, what was it, the nine, what was it, the 1990, what was that, the, the, the Olympic basketball team with, you know, that had Jordan, had, yeah. I mean, had Char Barkley, they had everybody. everybody. And they got beat by, you know, they got beat in a practice game by, you know, a, a college squad. Yeah. Because they didn't play as a team. Yeah. So you can have, you can have organizations that are made up of stars, but if it, if it generates a toxic culture, they are going to underperform, you know, a group of far less talented individuals yeah. who understand how to come together yes. and just operate um, flawlessly as a team. I, I want to dig into that as we kind of approach the, the natural culmination of yeah. this conversation. Um, I think there's a lot of nuance to this and to insti instilling a, a a dynamic within your teams and within your your company cultures that is productive and that ultimately will bleed through every every level, every function, every part of of your team. Um, can you give one or two examples of? tactics um, that you've seen implemented in the companies you've been a part of or worked for, either positively or negatively. In terms of, give me a little bit more of that. Um, specific strategies or things that the leaders in these companies have either done or that has clearly been, you know, a, a source of toxicity or downfall within the organization. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, well, actually, things? let me go the other way because okay. toxic's easy, right? Easy. I mean, that's, um, I'll, I'll give some examples to where it breaks down. But I think that if we were, if we were to characterize um, sort of, you know, what do the very best CEOs and executive teams do? Right. You know, they, and, and it's, it's not, you know, I mean, there's a lot that goes with that chair, um, the CEO's chair in yeah. particular. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's really your ability as a CEO to come in and have a, a, a compelling vision for where you want to go, and a very clear, you know, a very clear strategy um, of how you're going to get there, and how you're going to allocate resources. Okay. And this and this is a team sport, right? Particularly in today's world. This is not somebody sitting on a high. This is that servant leader model where yeah. I'm working with my executive team yeah. to you know, with input from lots of stakeholders around this vision, this strategy and resources we're going to deploy. Yeah. And then, you know, your ability to uh, to, to take that and sort of you begin to sort of operationalize it and you, you do that through culture mm -hmm. you do that through organizational design mm -hmm. you do that through the metrics that you put in place so there's you know there's these and I, I won't go sort of through them all although so there's that piece and then there's sort of how do you, how do you mobilize and motivate people right. I talked about that earlier right? right you need to connect the dots yes between that vision 
that strategy, the, the metric, and then and the, the, how you're going to measure performance in that to what people want as individuals. And so that's pushing that down. And that's, that's where trust, psychological safety, and relationships, you keep those as your North Star, as part of your culture. You build the rest around it. And then the key, and this is perhaps one of the non-obvious, is if you're in the CEO chair, the other thing you need to absolutely do is focus on your own personal um, self-development mm-hmm. and well-being. Yeah, yeah. Because if you lose that, the rest of it begins to crumble. And this yeah. is where toxic behaviors begin to creep in. Yes. Is that you know, if you're not constantly focused on being kind of the best in your world right. and taking care of yourself, right. you're going to start to get creep in values. People mm-hmm. are going to start doing things and they, they, as it moves down into, t- and you're yes. not, you're not really enforcing, enforcing living that. Right. And so toxicity, I mean, it's just it's so biological, right? It's just, you know, it can come from some external source that it gets injected into the, or you, you hire somebody <laughs> who's toxic yeah. and you don't, as, as, as a CEO or as an exec, part of an executive team, you don't immediately deal with it. You don't use the, you know, the fact that, you know, if you don't live the values, you know, you're, you're not here. You're not part of this team. It's what organizations like the SEALs do so well, right? Because they know that you know there's a lot of people. A lot of people have a variety of motivations to want to wear that trident. Mm-hmm. And the, the friends of mine who, who've gone through the gone through the, the SEALs program, they say that you know you'll see people being eliminated not because they aren't phenomenal athletes. They're really smart. They're, they're there for the wrong reason. Yeah. They're there for ego. They're there for themselves. They're not there for their for the team. And it comes through. And no one wants to walk into that building, you know, under fire with somebody they can't trust. Yeah. So you're, you're not going to make it in yes. the best of the best teams. But we can all do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all set the, you know the bar high for you know for ethical behavior okay. for for those core values and then live them every day. Right. It doesn't cost you anything more to live high you know a set of values um, that result in this high trust, high performance culture and organization. That's the irony of it, mm-hmm. is that when you look at mediocrity, you know, the human beings involved versus yeah. the highest performance, they're human beings. Yeah. They have the same, you know, same stuff going on inside of their brains. So, you know, often they went to the same schools. They went to the and yet, you know, that invisible hand that's dictating how people behave is letting this group down versus uh, elevating um, this other one. Mm. And that's you know, so toxicity, you know, it it creeps in, and once yeah. it does, uh, you know, it becomes perhaps the most dangerous uh, dimension of a organization, is yep. a culture that's becoming toxic. So staying adamantly focused on making sure you're bringing the right people in that you share at a core level, you know, a a set of values and beliefs um, with those people and then continuing to cultivate a a culture of progress and trust and truth and, you know, innovation to move forward. Yeah, you live them every day. And then then, going back to the one habit, you recognize that people are human. Yeah. They are going to mess it up. Yeah. So what you get, as again, going back to the, the, the Israeli fighter pilots, what the captain said to me in the end, he said, look, we are not perfect human beings. We're like everybody else, right? We get it wrong, we screw it up. He said, but what we are extraordinarily good at is closing the gaps. Mm-hmm. We're really good at making sure that whatever it was, we own it. Yeah. No questions asked. This was my issue. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Radical accountability. It, it is radical. Not yet, exactly. As opposed to radical candor, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you're an introvert, it completely freaks you out. And, you know, I mean, things like 
that you know that you would see sort of become cliches yeah. are but radical accountability and you know that willingness to own um, my own behavior and to be held to a standard you know within an organization yeah. and, you know if it's not you don't be part of this organization that's fine mm-hmm. you know it's like cool you know you don't want to be that no problem you're just not going to do it here and you know if more organizations more CEOs and executive teams took that approach um, they would find that their uh, their lives would get a lot easier a lot simpler and the results would be a lot better dr hurley where can people go to get your book and to connect with you um best place to connect with me linkedin just slash jeff hurley um and there's links actually on there to bring where partners and and in there there's all the resources books and things like that anyone you know uh, who's so inclined lots of articles and things that i've written but yeah. uh yeah, again, Wonderful. you know, it's when you get down to the, the core of who we are as people and make this really human, mm-hmm. it gets a lot simpler uh, as leaders. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you got a ton of value with this episode. Big thanks to my guest, Dr. Jeb Hurley. We will include those links right below in the description. So be sure to check those out. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Michael, my pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Hey guys, that's it for this episode. Please be sure to rate, review, comment, and share. Everything helps. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My book, Content Capitalist, is on sale now. Grab your copy by visiting my website or tapping the link in the episode description. I also just released the online learning portal, which expands on what I share in the book. This includes four hours of edited, captioned video tutorials and trainings, plus dozens of downloadables and templates. Between the book and the e-academy, you're going to be equipped to literally blow your revenue targets out of the water and eviscerate your competition this year, all by putting content at the core. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, comment, and share all the things. And hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. I am here to serve you. And that's it. I will see you in the next episode.